Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. Mike Lewis here for the Fanalytics podcast. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Tom Smith, economics professor extraordinaire. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Hey, I love that uh, introduction. I think that you should just call me that every time you see me. I can do that. Okay, thank you, Mike. I can do, we can thank do that you. in the hallways. Thank you, Mike. Just by way of further introductions, you know, I, mean, I think of myself fundamentally as an analytics guy, and I think of you fundamentally as an economist. Is that fair? That's fair. Right. And so I think we make a, I, I think, you know, why I love having you in for these things, I think we bring some different perspectives to it. The thing I want to talk about today NBA draft lottery is tonight. Tonight. It's exciting. <laughs> Do you remember the first NBA draft lottery? I don't. I remember the first lottery I paid attention to. Which was? Um, I, I started paying attention when Shaquille O'Neal was uh, drafted by Orlando Magic. And then I want to say... The second year they won. What is that, won, 91, 92? Yeah, it would have been in that in that time frame. And then it, the next year they won the lottery again. And I want to say they made a little bit of a, tra- a trade. They got Penny Hardaway. And then the NBA changed the rules so that teams couldn't get back-to-back number one kind of uh, draft picks. Kind of ancient history for me. So Penny Hardaway, with, they they moved down to get him at two or three. Is that what I it think was? there was a tr- there was a trade there, and uh, I should have I should have done some research because I know what's going to happen is my email is going to explode, and somebody's going to say, "Well, actually, because they'll have Google at their disposal." But yeah, there was something happened where they picked number one, they traded for Penny Hardaway, and then people went a little bit nuts because they got back to back number one draft picks. We are they, we are Google free on this podcast. We are Google free. I know. We're, <laughs> So factually, factually fact- shake it, shaky, but Google free. Google free. That's interesting. And let, let's come back to that in a second, this issue of changing the draft lottery because something didn't go right. I think the most famous lottery of all time, um, and I'm surprised it was Patrick Ewing draft lottery of 1985. So, you know, if we go back in history, and again, we might be a little shaky on history. We, we were there for when it happened, but our memories. Who knows? In 84, the Rockets picked who? Akeem Olajuwon? Akeem Olajuwon. And, you know, they they won that via a coin flip. Right. And I think that was the 
the, the draft lottery was the NBA's response to the perception that the Houston Rockets had tanked to get in a position where they had the worst record in the Western Conference, flip a coin versus the worst record in the Eastern Conference, and the winner of that was the Houston Rockets with Hakeem Olajuwon. Right. The way the lottery used to work, or originally worked, the early days of the lottery, and so do you remember what the controversy was with uh, the Ewing? I don't. So you don't? We're Google-free. We're Google-free. Who knows if any of this is true. I remember that the the thought was, ba- back in the day, it was the non-playoff teams. You put each team plaque, placard in an envelope, and then someone selected it. Right. Now, the Knicks, very convenient, right? So the best player in the draft, Patrick Ewing, goes to play for the Knicks. And so there were there were theories out there that they had frozen the envelope uh-huh. so that the commissioner could reach in there, feel the cold one, and now you've got the marquee that. player in New York City. That's right. That's right. So he froze out the competition. <laughs> Thank you. That's the last that's the last time I'm going to do that by the way. Just that, to, uh, to get it out there. So what I really want to talk about today you know, as we as we get into the NBA draft, is this issue? Well, I want to talk about a bunch of things. I, I love the NBA draft. I love all these drafts: the NFL right. draft, the NBA draft. If you're interested, Tom and I did a an earlier episode where we talked about drafting quarterbacks in the lead up to the NFL draft. But you know, it was a real key word this year in terms of the NBA season. This word of tanking. Right. I think one of the things that we should make sure we right off from the, from the get go, and this has a lot to do with both economics and analytics is that uh, the NBA draft has to be different than the NFL draft because with uh, five men on the court, the likelihood that somebody that you draft could make an immediate impact on your team is much larger for the NBA than it is for the NFL. And so the NFL draft is almost strictly worst to first. Uh, the only difference is that whoever wins the Super Bowl, even if they didn't have the best record, picks last. And then the runner-up, whoever lost the Super Bowl, picks, has the penultimate pick. Okay. And so the NBA draft, potentially more impactful because of smaller numbers. You are able to draft LeBron James. Seems like as long as you hold him in your on your club, you're going to be competitive. That's right. The very nature of worst-to-first drafts. So as an economist, how do you think about these drafts? The idea is that the league itself is trying to develop something very special. And it's something that, as fans, we love and hate at the same time. So the league's responsibility is to create a league that has a competitive balance across the league. What they want is they want the average fan to be able to tune in to a basketball game, a football game, a baseball game, if you will, on any given Thursday night or Sunday night, but, and and have the chance of seeing either team be victorious. But wait, I um, you know I grew up in Chicago, and I I enjoyed basketball the most when the Bulls won the championship every year. <laughs> that was a great <laughs> six of eight years. Yes. <laughs> So six Pete. Yes. <laughs> and I think that's an important point, right? It's like, so you have these kind of, what do they call it? The peculiar economics of sport. I'm going way back into the memory sure. banks. Sure. The idea that the teams always want to win, but the leagues don't. That's the, right. The leagues want to have something called competitive balance or parity. Some parity. That's right. 
What most people don't really know is that the way that teams make the lion's share of their money is not through ticket sales, it's not through concessions, it's not by selling jerseys or hats, it's by television revenue. And the, the number one source of revenue is the league-wide or the national broadcasting revenue that the, the, that the league generates by selling its rights to your ESPNs, your NBCs, or what have you. And so if you're going to sell you know, a billion dollars worth of television, the NBCs or the ESPNs who are buying that, they don't particularly care that the Bulls win championship after championship because that's going to take away from the average fan enjoying those contests. What they want is they want the league to have some kind of a parity so that the average fan says, oh, wow, it could be anybody's game. How interesting. Let's sit down and watch. You know, I, I want to stay out of the weeds, but, um, you know, I think that that'd be an interesting conversation as well, because I, I would want to take what you said. And I, I get where you're coming from, like the, this idea that you want to have a vibrant league, you want to have a national sport. That's right. NFL is a great example of that, right, where people can watch in any city and, you know, they feel like they got a shot. I always think of it, and maybe this is more of me as the marketing guy coming into this, that probably the ideal solution for the, the leagues is, you know, I got New York. I got Boston or I got Chicago. I got a winner. I, I got a, I got a, my dominant teams are in those markets. I've got Patrick Ewing. And I mean, in some ways, you go back to the 80s. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but Michael Jordan ended up in Chicago. Patrick Ewing ended up in New York. You still had Magic Johnson in Los Angeles. Wow, that was kind of perfect, wasn't it? It really was. You, you had Bird in, at the Celtics there in Boston. And so there was, um, once upon a time, a, a previous commissioner. I want to say David Stern. Um, commissioner for basketball? Yeah. And, it, and I think he may have slipped. Someone's going to Google this. Once upon a time where he said, look, like the perfect championship would be you know, the Lakers against the Knicks, right? You got these two big national markets, right? But the league's... But the league wants your small market to go against the, the, the big market, right? The, the David versus Goliath, and it could be anybody's game. And people were really critical of him saying, you know, you are favoring these teams. Maybe you don't like it that San Antonio is winning all these championships because they're not one of the bigger markets. And it's true, it doesn't lead to as big a um, you know, viewership. But it's better for the league to have mm-hmm. smaller, non-big market teams winning championships because it shows that the league cares about parity. Right. So I like all that conspiracy stuff, man. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. It's a good question. And, you know, one where, you know, the analytics is probably going to let us down, right, in terms of what is the right, what is the right level of parity, what is the right level of competitive balance. You know, having the Yankees, let's say baseball, having the Yankees play the Dodgers one year and then having, let's say, Boston play the Brewers, having that mix might be the right way. I don't know what the mix is. I don't think anyone does, right? But it's like on all these things, and and so when I think about the draft, I think league economics, competitive balance, and to me it kind of fits in with all this other stuff, free agency, salary caps, revenue sharing, et cetera, et cetera. This year, Probably, and I think this comes up every year, a lot of discussion about tanking. Yes. Okay. This idea that you are going to, well, why don't you define tanking for the, the folks? 
So the idea here is that, especially in the NBA, it's all the non-playoff teams enter into the draft lottery. Um, based on where you fall in terms of your win-loss record, you've got a certain number of ping-pong ball combinations that give you access to the top three draft picks. Unlike when we were talking about in 1985, where all the non-playoff teams had the same chance. Exactly, exactly. So we have these non-playoff teams. Everybody has a chance, but the teams with the worst records have more of a chance of getting in the top three draft picks. Even So the last team that didn't make the playoffs, they still have a chance, whatever it was, at 1.6% chance of getting in the top three, but their chance is very low. So the idea of tanking is, let's suppose you know you're not going to make the playoffs. Let's suppose that you identify the marginal impact of losing an additional five games or eight games. Then you say, wait a minute. If we lose, we're going to go on a road, you know, this road trip here of six games. We could easily lose five of these six games without trying too hard. And we'll increase our likelihood of getting that first round or first three picks by 20%. So if we tank, you know, I hold this player. I, I say, don't push yourself. You know, you get a sprained ankle. Or uh, maybe I don't tell my players to throw the game because that would be against the rules. But if I don't draw plays, if I don't force my players into a particular situation where they got to make that shot, I could, by not coaching the right way, essentially help my team lose. Okay. And that would be the tanking. And again, I think we come back to the strange economics of sports or the peculiar economics of sports. So if what I'm hearing is, so if I lose, I get something. That's right. right. And, and actually, you know, going back or I get a better chance at something. Going back and thinking about how the draft lottery evolved, everything has sort of been in response to try and eliminate tanking, right? That's right. So we go away from the coin flip because we want everyone who you know doesn't make the playoff to have an equal shot at it, right? Because then there's no reason to tank, right? Because I, I, everyone wants to make the playoffs. But that leads to, I don't know, something a little bit unfair, right? Well, you know, these guys missed the playoffs by a game. I missed it by 30 games, right? So you've got to you've got to balance that out. That's so a, then we go to right. I think that's a real. I mean, that's a really good point, right? And that is that if the league says we've got this really terrible team, we really should try to stack the deck mm-hmm. to so that team gets one of the best college players out there. Because then in three years they'll be a playoff team, and so now it creates this competition. It's almost a example of real live game theory being played out right it absolutely the games of the teams the games of the league so so your listeners so let's 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 throw the game theory in there and give people like, like these real scenarios so the most recent example of this is the philadelphia 76ers and so i'm sure people out there are familiar with i don't know if it was called the project or the, the process. process so the, the pro- process so the process right and so you're familiar you're familiar with the the process and so, and and I, when you think about it, it's really smart. It gets to your one of your mm-hmm. core points about the analytics. It gets to one of your core points about the game theory, and that is, if you're the 76ers, not, and you say, look, this team is dominated by this league. Excuse me, is dominated by four teams, right? And it's you and I could both write down who we think are the top four teams, but we're going to write down the same four teams. At the beginning of the season, it seems like we can, you know 
list four teams and we can pretty much define. And I, I think in some ways there's a problem for the NBA. We could write four teams down and determine who's going to be in the NBA. Yeah, we finals. probably would get three of the teams that yeah. are in the top four easily, right? It's and so you know it's going to be your your Golden State, Golden you know State, it's going to be your Cleveland. Cleveland. <laughs> I was I'm always I'm always San Antonio is always in the mix right it's now. Almost, it's almost like become like a superhero movie, right? right, Where right. We, we know the Avengers are going to win. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Spoiler <laughs> alert, right? There you go, half the time, right? And so so if you're the 76ers and you say, look, we can't, even if we were going to compete, we can't really compete. The only way to really compete is to not compete. Yeah. Well. That is, I mean, that's brilliant, right? And the only way to not the way to really do it is to not do it at all. Okay, and and so this is the this is the problem. And I think the the Seventy Sixers. I think there's some really interesting things in terms of what they did and and how they played out, right? But essentially, it's we're going to be terrible for a number of years with an eye towards the future. And I don't know I don't know how long they talk about how long the process actually yeah, took or years, what it was yeah. what it was designed for. But they punished. Maybe that's too strong. They punished their fans. Uh, okay, I li- okay, I like that word. Uh, well, I, I don't know. What do you think the right word is? Yeah. Okay. My team is going to be terrible for years with a future payoff. How do you feel about that as a fan? So, as a fan that came out on the winning end of that, I'm I actually can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. What, what did we, they win? Well, no. So now, so so what you don't know? Are they what, still playing? They so here so here's so here's here's what I like about this is that uh, and you know me we're, we're both we're both from Chicago. I'm a huge Cubs fan. I when when Theo Epstein came over from the Red Sox, I saw what he was what was going to happen was we were going to lose 100 games a couple of years. And he had a pro, not the quote the process, but he knew what he was doing, and he said, "This is what I'm going to do, and there's going to be a promised land." And sure enough, my Cubbies won a World Series, mm-hmm. and and so if I'm looking at that, if we were to have gotten close but no cigar, I would have been like, "Ah, you punished me for years with no ring." Did uh, did he need to do that though? They could have done what they did, building through the draft and building up the minor leagues. They also could have paid to put a product out there immediately. Um, but, but teams have tried that. One of the things that the leagues are working against is... Well, it's a baseball the, thing, though. That's right? a baseball thing. In baseball, right. without a salary cap... That's right. The Cubs could have built that system while still... You know, maybe they would have lost some money. They could have. They, yeah. and they So, but it's... But the fact that leagues are using this worst-to-first draft, are using revenue sharing, are using other avenues to create parity, it works against just buying a championship. Because otherwise, every team would go out and buy a championship every year. But you've got 30 teams that are trying to buy that championship, right? And so that makes it much more difficult to do. Do Do the 76ers, do they suffer three years through just awful games, awful, terrible games. Absolutely. They made the playoffs. They made it into the second round. They're clear. They're not in the... They're not in the finals. Not in the finals. Not in the conference finals. Not in the fi- conference finals. So, but do they... Can they say, okay, if we could tweak it a little bit here, let's well, make a trade in the offseason. So, let, so let's talk about this. And so I, I think this question of sort of competitive balance, league rules... Um, 
the collective bargaining agreement is what a lot of this boils down to. Differences across the league. You know, the NFL shares the national TV deal. Different environment. Let's focus on the NBA mm-hmm. for a second here. In some ways, this issue of tanking kind of falls into me, this question of how can you build, how can you best build a team? Right. Okay. Early on in this, you mentioned the idea that you could draft, an, let's call it an impact player. Right. An impact player and change things. Part of me wonders if that, if that was too strong. I'm not, I'm not sort of giving you my perspective on that, that there really aren't a lot of impact players. That what you need in the NBA is you need three guys. You need three top 15 players, and one of them somehow needs to be a top two or three player in the league. So this was the um, the former GM of the Atlanta Hawks. I'm going to forget his name. There was a rule, and and the rule is what you need is you need three of these players in the top 15. Okay. And in order to basically, if you want to succeed in the NBA, you have to find this this triangle of players that can push your team just above a little bit more. And you just have to be mm-hmm. just marginally better than the next team because all that matters is you just get you just get one more point than they do, and that's a win versus a loss. And you get everything. And you get everything. Yeah. So so if you've got to win, if you've got to have three of the top fifteen players, then what the Sixers did actually makes a lot of sense, right? You almost need to have a locally here. I think the Hawks are in a rebuild mode. You need to have a multi-year tanking strategy. Yes. Is that what is that what's been created? That is probably the most efficient way when you're thinking about all of the, the constraints that an NBA franchise owner would have, right? They need to make profit. They just can't like just dump money into a hole forever. And you say, like, the only way to really be successful is to win games, to make it to the playoffs. So what I do is I lose purposefully two, three, four years in a row, get a bunch of draft picks, Maybe I can trade up with my mm-hmm. draft picks, trade a couple draft picks to get an even better draft pick, and then now all of a sudden now I've got these three players, and you say, wow, all I need is some utility players around these three, and I get a sharpshooter, I get some people who don't throw the ball away, and boom, all of a sudden I've got myself a winning team. Now let me ask you more of an analytics question. How many years does it take to get those three players? And where I'm going with this, because I think all these things end up being interrelated. And so when I hear these discussions about tanking, I feel like the discussions are almost always too, they're too small. I would put forth the argument that this current one and done system makes it so teams almost have to adopt a multi-year tanking strategy to be successful. Yeah. You see where I'm going with that or? I I do. And so I I want to say that because let's go, let's go back remember when we started with this. Akeem Olajuwon, and Patrick Ewing. These guys played 4 years. Was there any doubt that they were going to be stars? No. There really wasn't. Kid plays 1 year of kid is a five-star recruit, goes and plays 1 year at Duke. Maybe doesn't even start, right? Or goes is there more doubt? There is. There is more doubt. And so the analytics part of this would say you would, I would go backwards and identify, are there some kind of characteristics of my college players that translate into sure thing, sure thing in right. the professional league's performance? See, what and, I would look for, yeah. I would actually look for more variance. Interesting. 
Then because I want to... stars, right? Right. I want extraordinary performance, right? So in some ways, maybe I don't even care about the boss. Okay. I I, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 it's actually disturbing to me as we have this conversation because I, I feel like I'm evolving to the, the ideal strategy. I tank for like six years. Okay. I, tank, I take the highest variance players, and if I get three out of those six to, to work out, is that the... Okay, so yeah. now, so all of a sudden, when you said that... I thought of Mark Cuban, but not of Mark Cuban, the basketball owner. I'm thinking Mark Cuban in Shark Tank. Because, right? Because, I mean, Mark Cuban in Shark Tank says, look, I go for these deals and I don't need to hit on every deal. I need to hit on, you know, X percentage of these deals in order for me to be successful, right? You want the blockbusters. You want the blockbusters. And so if you're thinking about this that way, then you say, look, I tank for half a dozen years, and even if I don't get the number one draft pick, I am going outside and I say, like, okay, on my odd years, I draft the players that are, like, they were all, all stars in their conference and they got to the Final Four and whatever else. And then in the even years, I draft the, you know, the throwaway, like, okay, this guy could be awful or it could be, like, amazing. And so what I do is I kind of go for an outside, right? Just a okay. to- I just throw the dice at this player and figure anything could happen. But I, so this is only one of a number of draft picks that I'm going to get. So it could be a throwaway draft pick. I like that. Yeah. I don't well, know if that's what you were suggesting or not. Well, I think it's that you're probably right that, they're, um, that it introduces all sorts of complexity to the team, right? That I've got to – in some ways I love variance for some kind of players, and I hate variance for other kind of players, right? And maybe there are, you know, sort of the, the pieces of the puzzle, the, the role players or the, the banger rebounder. You know, maybe I want certainty there. But if I'm drafting for that superstar, then I want the variance, which, again, kind of creates a lot of strange incentives across these leagues. And it does. And it, and it creates... It's almost like I want the guy that was injured because I don't know, right? It's a mystery. I want the mystery package rather than the guy that played four. I definitely want the guy that played one year than the guy that played four years at Duke. It's an interesting thing. All right, but so does that – now, does that change now because we're getting into a different kind of like analytics and game theory. Does that change how college players go about what they try to do? Because they need to win. They need to show points. They need to show productivity. But if you get like a – if you have all of a sudden teams that start drafting – sort of these fringy players. Don't you think that's already happened? That it's like one of the worst things you can do as a player is stay four years in college basketball? Yeah, it's, yeah, it, it because it's, there's... You've revealed any upside. Well, you've revealed any fault of your game. Right. Right? So let me ask you this. It's sort of just totally open to, it might feel almost like a putting you on the spot. Okay, I like, I like being put on the spot. You're the NBA. What do you do with this draft lottery? They try a coin flip. People complain about that. They try putting all the playoff teams into the, the hopper. People complain about that. They've got this weighted system, and people are still endlessly going on about tanking. What do you do? Well, what they're actually going to do is they're changing the, the lottery probabilities again starting next year. And so they're probably going to move them more towards the – envelope scenario than the super weighted you know scenario so because that would eliminate some of the incentive to tank to tank right so if they if they say like okay instead of the first team having 
Um, so an example, the Suns, right? You say they have a 64% chance of making one of the top three, three picks, picks right? 25% of the top picks. So what if you move that to 50%, right? And then you move that other 14% down towards some of those middle teams, so right. just playing the mar, you know, working on the margins. You're just working on the margins. Then what you do is you, you are eliminating on the margin the that one team that says, okay, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna throw tonight's game. I mean, we're not gonna play as hard as we would otherwise, right? And and that's what I think the NBA is gonna do. What the NBA should do. And this is what I want. Is <laughs> speculation. Until they show that viewership has really gone down, I think they should play a what and wait and see game. Because what I want to know, I let it go. S- I would let it go. Now here's why: we already know who's. I mean, we have a pretty good idea about who's going to make the, conf- the the championships this year, right? And even at the beginning of next season, those are going to be the Las Vegas odd-on favorites anyway. So. I would say there's nothing they can do this year. There's nothing they can do next year because the Suns aren't going to win a championship next year. I'm sorry, folks, but they're not. Even if they win the number one pick, they're not going to go to the championship next year. It's going to take them multiple years to rebuild that team because that team was not very good. So if I'm the NBA, I would say, okay, you guys want to tank. We see there's an incentive to tank. Maybe we let the draft go, but what we do is we take away some of your revenue sharing numbers. Okay. Right? So we like to, we're gonna hit you on the other side. You wanna tank and, and so How do you know they're tanking? Yeah, that's how do you not, prove that? How do you know somebody's flopping? because <laughs> yeah, in some ways you're setting it up like, oh God, you're terrible. And we're going to punish you for being terrible. You know what? I'm really glad that you asked me that. So it was, I want to say it was two years ago where, as a San, three, maybe three years ago, as the San Antonio Spurs were, were thinking towards their long-term playoffs, what was happening was their coach was sitting out a player or two. If they were on a long road trip, they'd send a player home early. And the league started finding them and saying, you're not putting the best team on the court. Now, of course, the Spurs turned around and said, we're trying to win championships, not necessarily this game. This is in our long run best strategy to like send this guy home for a, a day early to get some rest. What I would do is I would I would look at maybe an expected runs table, if you will, right? <laughs> I, if I was I mean if I was the league, I'm not saying this is if I'm the league, I would say like this is what the score of this game should be. And then I would try to identify whether it's like within X number of standard deviations from what the actual score fraud, was. Fraud, uh, some sort of fraud. It's like we're going to develop a fraud detection algorithm to. Now I don't know what we do when Atlanta is playing Phoenix this year. I don't, <laughs> and, the, I don't and, the, know. The, and the final score ends up being fifty-five to eight, fifty, <laughs> fifty-five <laughs> to fifty-two. Right. That's right. The, the 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 thought that I've always had on these things is. And I like where you're going with with some of the thoughts. It's like what I think there needs to be is an incentive for taking care of the fans. Yeah. So an incentive for keeping the fan base happy. And so th- this ends up being kind of a tricky thing. So I would actually look at something like I would want to add something related to, let's say, paid attendance or actually maybe people actually showing up. People showing oh, up is probably a better one. I like so that. then somehow there's a formula for being your, your draft odds as a function of both how the team performed and how many fans actually showed up. That would be intense. 
show. It's like you get better odds if you could if you could encourage your fans to root for your sucky team. Well, I mean that that's this is nothing's perfect, right? <laughs> My thought would be that it's like, well, if you're playing hard, if you're trying, more fans are going to show up. But you're probably right. It probably does boil down to, uh, hey, everyone in Atlanta, we're in this together. Show up so we can get, so a, we draft get a bad draft pick. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I. You know what? I love the idea, and it's again being a long-suffering Chicago Cubs fan. It's People would say like, "Geez, like if just, if just if let's just let's get together, people. Let's not show up to the game to show the owners that they've got to be serious about rebuilding this team, right?" And so there's that creates a, 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 a disconnect between what the fans think and that fans say. If I don't show up, the owners will get the picture, so they've got to make the team better so that we'll show up. But if we show up for a crappy team. Then what's right. the incentive to actually put together a winning team? So now we now we've got a essentially a game theory problem, but now we've we've got three players. We've got the league, we've got the teams, and we've got the fans. Right. And depending on where it is that you your team happens to be, you either have really loyal fans and you've done lots of research on this. You have your loyal fans or you don't have your loyal fans. And so if you're lucky enough to be in a market with loyal fans, you could ta- through okay. that system you could tank and get first round draft picks and you'd be unlucky enough to be in Atlanta. But what do you, <laughs> you tank and- Okay, but but don't, but how about this as a as a pushback on this? What you've got to do is encourage these teams to create loyal fans. Oh man. And so, you know, and look, this is kind of a mystery. So how do you create loyal fans? I mean, you know, you win championships. It's been championships, yeah. But do you create, I mean, and look, this will be the interesting thing in terms of Philadelphia. You know, during the process, attendance tanks. They've now, you know, they've got something going. Do the fans always come back? You know, what is the downside? Is there a downside to the process? I mean, so my argument will be based really on the idea that, you know, you always got to play hard. You got to keep the fans engaged. That is such a difficult thing to predict Think about this when when the Atlanta Hawks the Atlanta Hawks had had this really great s- string of um, victories in terms of getting to the playoffs and they had a record number of seasons in a row that they won made it to the playoffs but they were never able to get past the first round then they got to the second round they eventually got swept by Cleveland but as when they started actually when they got into the second round and they got into the third round. They sold a lot of season tickets for the following year. So fans do show up, but the problem is they couldn't put together a winning team after that, and then fans start to dwindle. And so you can get that, but also think about this. The Braves had won so many um, you know, division championships in a row that people started getting bored by the fact that, you know, through the, what was it, the 90s, right? So most of the 90s was just sort of dominated by, you know, all of these great Braves pitchers. And at some point, people weren't even showing up to the first round playoff games. Like people were like, eh, whatever, they're winners. And so it can, it can swing both ways. You suck, your attendance goes down, you get great, and maybe your attendance goes down, maybe just in the wrong city. Right, and I, and I love that, and I think that's a topic for a future episode, talking about, let's say, we could talk about the Atlanta sports market or sort of some other different you know, right. differences across sports market because it, it is a fascinating one. Moving to this city, 
thinking about that Braves run and thinking about how much they've been embraced. I mean, can you imagine in Chicago if the Cubs had made the playoffs in that kind of you know, they would own that, that city. So they there too, right? it's always going to be all yeah. sorts of differences. So one of the things we're going to get, I think we're both going to get emails and tweets about is, you know, people are going to always, always come back and say like, well, why don't we do something like they do in European soccer with relegating really? teams? And it's always, and, and I always show, show them the economics and say, you understand that this is an absolute impossibility. You can't say like, Okay, so the 76ers, you know, they tank, so we move them into the D League and move somebody else up. You say, well, you need to have a huge fan base to support a second tier of teams across the entire country. Of course, in order for that to work, you'd have to have, you know, a television deal and people willing to go to those games. In this country, man, you can't, you can't get people to... You know, go see the Timberwolves for crying out loud. Like you know, or the you know, or the Hawks. Much less like a a D League team. And so, it's just an impossibility of having multiple tiers and rele- you know relegating teams between divisions. People always point to the European system and say it works for them. It doesn't work for them in a lot of ways. What we started talking about today was. The NBA draft and um, how far and, we've gone, and how far we've gone, <laughs> and tanking. But I think your point is incredibly well taken. And you know, it's like when we start talking about tanking, it starts out as something simple that you know teams are losing to get a better pick, and then we get into issues of, well, you know, how how does that work in terms of a building team, building a team, and how does that actually matter in terms of managing a league? But everything, you know, we find ourselves, I think, getting drawn into these other directions of everything is related. The draft, free agency, and now you're throwing in relegation. It, it's kind of endless on, on this stuff in terms of how this system kind of is put together and what's going to be the most effective system. What we're going to see after tonight's draft is, and people are probably going to be talking about this uh, on television, is that the league is going to move to change the probabilities of getting one of those first three picks and people will probably be talking about why it is that they're doing that and I guarantee that on one of the stations they're going to talk about the process they're going to talk about tanking they're going to talk about what the league is trying to achieve and all of the things we just mentioned will come up in some soundbite you know on one of the stations and it's all but it's all kind of rhetorical right what about this what about that exactly impossible to quantify and I think that's fair yeah it's almost like they're having a theoretical conversation. They almost always hit, I think, the right theoretical notes, even though they're not talking the right theoretical words. They almost always have a good idea about what they shouldn't do, and very few people have exactly the Goldilocks uh, solution, right? Just the right amount of the right amount of push and pull in order to get teams to, you know, behave the way that they should, and the way that as fans we anticipate. We really hope that. Our team's going to go out there and give. It's always 110. percent I mean, my team only gives 100. percent I mean, that's not good enough, right? It's got to be 110, percent Mike. Got to be 110. percent On a local level, Atlanta's got a 13.7 percent chance at a at the number one pick. 42 percent chance of a top three pick. Do you have hope, my friend? Let's let's see how the ping pong balls bounce. And I would be. Uh, I, I guess I would be happy for Atlanta fans if they did. 
that would make my ticket prices probably a little bit more expensive. So we'll well, why don't we leave it at there with a promise to come back and talk about the Atlanta sports market, how this place works, how these teams interact, how Atlanta fandom works. Okay, but if they win, if they win this lottery and they get a pick, then you got to make me a promise that we're going to do a podcast from courtside next year during a game. Just We'll just podcast out a game in the middle of a Hawks-Knicks uh, or something. Tom, you have more faith in our technology than we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.